It's when funny I, you said about Barack Obama because when you're talking about this whole thing and thinking like, man, he just he's like Obama. That's, that's, okay. that's what I'm thinking when you say it, all this stuff. I'm like, man. The moment we were, we were waiting, waiting in the red room before Obama came in, there's like a hundred students and all our military mentors as well. And Obama walked into the room and everyone just like the collective like gasp that happened, you know? But one of the moments I will like forever remember. But when I returned back, I remember, like I said, I would visit all my teachers at the end of the year. I went to visit one of my teachers, Mrs. Spencer, who was my sixth grade science teacher, and she gave me a book that she had gotten signed by President Obama like years and years ago. And she like wrote this little note to me and everything. Um, but she gave of, you a book that Obama signed for her? She gave it to you? She gave me the book that Obama signed for her. And, and you, like, you don't mean like she lets you borrow. You mean like she gave it to you, let you keep it? She let me keep it, yeah. Wow. And so my goal to this day is actually to get it to, I want to get back to President Obama to have him sign it and like write about her and then give it back to her. Because I just think like that, what, like just her giving that away to me and what that said to me, like she'd been thinking about me all those years, you know, and just like rooting me on. Um, and like I said, I think it's so unique to have a teacher like that. Man, that is awesome. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. That's, that's bonkers. <laughs> Hey guys, Dr. Dale here. Really quick before we start this episode, I want to ask you to support our mission by doing one thing. Just subscribe. Subscribe to our YouTube channel or our podcast channel, whichever one you listen to. Just hit that subscribe button. The way our podcasts get out there is by you guys liking it, by subscribing, and of course by sharing as well. So if you do one of those things for us right now, we really appreciate it. We work very hard to make these episodes for you guys. We work very hard to get them out for you guys and just to try to uplift the entire community. So if you could help us out by doing one of those things, subscribe, share, or like every time. I really appreciate it. Love you guys. What is up, fam? It's Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise the Doctor Wisdom from Parents Who Did It, the author of Black Men and White Coast, the author of the Dr. Doc Children series, the author of Prima Mondays, the author of... Uh, um, a doctor's guide to self-publishing that just came out on Amazon recently. Make sure you grab a copy. Um, look at the links below. You can grab all that stuff down below as well. And this is a Black Men and White Coast podcast, a place where Black clinicians have the platform to share their stories with listeners like you. Super, super excited about today's guest. Super excited, man. I'm trying to tell you, this guy is killing it. He is killing it. Before I introduce him to you, um, got to give you guys an update, right? So it never really went away, but we just haven't announced in a while, but we're back. We're giving out money for MCATs, all right? So if you all are taking the MCAT, just go around, uh, look down low below. There's going to be a link around here. Someone click on that link. I think it's blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash MCAT. I'm pretty sure that's the link, right? But look in the description of this podcast episode, click on it, apply. It's going to take you all of like five, 10 minutes or something like that. And we are paying for people's MCATs, okay? We're going to pay for MCATs. We don't want you to have to come out of pocket for it for no reason. We got the money in the bank. We want to give it to you. So if you're pre-med trying to go to med school, about to take the MCAT, we got you, all right? We want to cover that, cover that for you, all right? So that's the biggest announcement we've got. But otherwise, I mean, the summits, man, the summits are, are back on and popping. Let me tell you, we've got um, 20 lined up already that we're planning for over the next year. And we're just going to keep on stacking these bad boys up, all right? So uh, be on the lookout. We'll start sending emails out um, pretty soon here. Chicago Summit is going to be the first one coming back up here soon again. But be on the lookout for your emails. Check all that stuff, right? Because these summits are on and popping and you wanna, you're going to want to be there, okay? So... Today's guest, man, this dude is straight killing it, straight killing it. When I say killing it, man, I mean, all you got to do is go to his Instagram page. I'm not on TikTok, but I see his TikTok stuff still somehow. I'm not on TikTok. I still know about him on TikTok, 
right? Check out his TikTok stuff, man. I think he's got like over, if um, I looked this up, I think it was over like 45 million impressions or something like that. And like over 450,000 followers. So he's just killing it. And it's not just like he's up there just doing random stuff, right? He's up there like dropping knowledge, like dropping knowledge and talking about bias and all sorts of stuff, like educating the, the public. Um, and he's just absolutely killing. So I'm super excited to have him because it's a different genre. Let me just, let me say his name, introduce him real fast, and then we'll get into talking because I, I want to I dive into a lot of this on the show, right? So I've got student Dr. Joel Bravel, Joel Bravel, um, uh, med student right now. We're just talking, he's preparing to start looking at applying for the next step residency. But right now he's a med student, not just a med student. It's got to be one of the top med students in the country, just absolutely killing it. So Joel, super excited to have you on the show today, man. How you doing? I'm doing well, better now talking to you. I mean, I've been following this for so long. So this is amazing and surreal for me to be here today. Yeah, so, so you know, what I was going to say, but I wanted to introduce you first, like, so I think about when we started Black Men and White Coast, none of this stuff existed, right? So when we started Black Men and White Coast, wasn't nothing about Black doctors on social media. That, that That's why we started Black Men and White Coast, because it didn't exist, right? So we started Black Men and White Coast, and we, we kind of did things, you know, um, not just as other people were getting involved and such, but a little bit of a buzz about like diversity in medicine and, and Black men specifically on social media started to happen when we started putting our videos up, right? Um, and for us back then, it was big. We put up a video, it'd get like, you know, 100,000 views in a few days, right? And that was huge back then, right? But things have, I'm super excited about you because you're one of the guys who's just completely taking things to like a whole different level compared to what we even come close to, right? We came off. So you come on here and I can't even imagine how many views you get when you put something up, right? But you've taken that social media thing, you know, um, advancing healthcare through talking about bias and things about diversity and progressive medicine. You take it to a whole different level, and I'm going to get to your backstory, but let's just start off with how in the world were you able to crack social media like that and just take things to a different level? Because a lot of people want to do what you're doing and it's not that easy, right? So how were you able to do that? Man, that's a great question. And to this day, I'm still kind of like, this is crazy that like I've, I'm getting so much of a following. As you mentioned, over 400,000 right now on TikTok. And it's uh, like each a video I can put out can get anywhere from 100,000 to like, I've had some get like 10 million views, you know, Ooh. depending on what, it's, what I'm talking about. But I, I think it was this mix of things, being in the right exact moment of like, I remember when I started this, it was during COVID. So it was right at the beginning of COVID where people were kind of at home. There was this national conversation of things about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmed Aubrey. And I think that last one for me, Ahmed Aubrey, I was 26, uh, 25 at the time, the same age Ahmed was when I was a second year medical student starting all of this kind of stuff. Um, and so I think all those conversations, people were more willing to have these conversations about like, what does bias look like in the world? And then, oh my gosh, bias exists in medicine, a field that we think is like totally objective, um, but yet it still exists in the ways that it's been encoded in our history and that history continues and impacts today. And so I think what's really resonated with people is it's short form content. It's like everything I do is I try and keep it between 30 to 60 seconds. I think we have we have this generation of just like short attention spans. Um, it's a new generation now who hasn't heard about a lot of these things. And also even a current generation that doesn't know a lot about these things that exist today, or it's reframing what we believe already about the world. I mean, just yesterday I did a video on keloids and actually diving in and talking about how most people, a lot, a lot of doctors, myself included, uh, like as a medical student, believe that keloids are more common in black populations. But studies show that it actually is pretty common in other populations too. There's a study done in the Swiss and the rates of the, the rates of like keloids were the same amounts. So that's kind of getting into the nitty gritties, but 
things like that that are breaking kind of these the myth busting uh, these myths that we believe and trying to bring and break down how they occur. A um, lot more to it too, I guess, in terms of like trying to be just creative about it, using trends, bringing this into like a uh, cultural conversation too, making medicine more mainstream, making STEM more mainstream. Um, and then I think as well, just having, because of the work you're doing, a more diverse workforce too, more people interested in this as well. And I'm trying to figure out how can I be a part of the solution or what are the problems that exist here right now? Yeah, that's a lot, man. But you know, it, what you just said is a lot, but even beyond that, there's just, there's gotta be more to it, right? Like um, how often you post, when you mm. post things. Like, I'm sure there's a science to it that you've kind oh, of you, figured you out. You want all the secrets. <laughs> no, no, I don't, hey, I don't need the secrets. Like uh, I don't need the secrets, but just to show the, show the viewers um, that it takes, it takes effort on your part, right? It's not as if you just up and post and stuff. So I'm not, so I'll tell you the way we work, Black Men and White Coast. So I'm not like, um, it's people, people don't understand when I say this, and this kind of gets into the secrets of how we operate, which I won't get into as well. But I don't like my, our, 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 our MO is not like the, the, the following on social media, right? We do things through a different channel than, than social media stuff, really. Um, and I don't even know my brother. So Dr. Daniel, shout out to Dr. Daniel. Y'all don't see him. He's behind the scenes. He's the one who posts all this stuff, right? So we're going to do this little podcast. I'm going to send it to him that I just, I don't know what happens to it, right? It pops up on social media. Somebody tags me and I repost it, right? That's, that's how, that's how my social media stuff works. But but um, is the idea that there's work to this stuff that we're doing. It's not like we just make these podcasts and they show up and then they they impact people wherever. Like for you, it's not as if you just like record a video and you post up like, oh, I hope it does well. And you don't you don't have to tell you don't have to tell anything. But I just want people, I want the viewers to understand that what you're doing is actually like work. It's not just like, hey, Joel's out here doing fun. No, you're doing conscious stuff to make an impact, to make a change. And it's it's work. It's work that you should be credited for, right? It's work yeah. you should be you should receive credit for. Yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah, I was joking about the secrets, but uh, yeah. like how it does work for me is I try and post maybe two to three times a week. Um, on let, me, let, me, let me let me say you don't you don't have to tell because, you know, that's this is your thing. So you really you really don't have to tell. You know what I'm saying? You can keep it all low. Keep it all low. Keep, <laughs> keep them. Let them keep guessing. Right. Let them figure it out. Right. You know, <laughs> I don't mind at all because I think it's all about democratizing that information. Right. To I, I actually I've started talking more about how black creators like just in general need to get more visible because a lot of these apps suppress the information um, or suppress that content um, through the algorithm. And so. I think a lot about how do I make sure that content for my creators as well. It's about kind of going the rules of the game. It's about frequency, consistency, and then length of time that's being watched for the videos. So in terms of like my account, I one, I know that I have a following, so I make sure that everything's super accurate. And I think that's a big thing for me. So before I even before the video even goes out, there's probably been two to three hours of behind the scenes research that goes into this, you know? And a lot of my my information is is research-based. And so I will go and do the studies and look through studies and read through entire studies to say, okay, keloids, like the example I was talking about before. Let's look at this first study from 1961 now that a Congolese, uh, that was about Congolese mine workers at this random dermatology meeting was connected to what's happening now on up-to-date, reading through up-to-date, which is what a lot of physicians use in order to understand kind of the up-to-date information for patients and then merging those two things and then figuring out how do I bring in images that I can put in the background that are visual, that like connect to this still and then finding the captions. So actually I write out my scripts word for word before I do it. And I kind of memorize the script and then I go and record, you know? And so it, it's a, one video can take anywhere from like, if it's a short one, one hour, but it can take upwards of like five hours, you know, of the research process of making sure that I get it accurate. I have a lot of doctors and nurses and like 
medical students that are following me and I don't want to put out more false information. And so I'm super specific about what I put out um, in that regards. Um, but yeah, in terms of the frequency, it's all, I try and do it. So it's things that I find interesting myself. Um, I do a lot of series I think do really well and it makes it easy for me to understand like what caught like generally I want to post. So some of my favorite series have been about racial biases in medicine. I actually just did a woke black history series, which I loved. And it was about highlighting individuals in history, black individuals in history in the STEM fields and beyond that have done amazing work that you probably didn't learn about in school. People like Mae Jemison, who's um, the first black woman astronaut to go to space, but is also a doctor. And also was a peace care, a peace, a peace um, corps worker. And then also um, like came back and went, was the first real astronaut to be on uh, Star Trek. All these really cool things that she's done, but most people probably haven't heard of her, right? Um, and really putting stories like that out there. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's about the research. It's about making sure that it's accurate. And then it's about trying to find a way to make it engaging through music and imagery in the background. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, the cool things about it is number one is you're learning while you're doing that also, right? So it's, it's is contributing to your own education. And also number two is like, you've established like curriculum, you know, it's like a curriculum people can go there. Okay, but okay, let's, let's rewind, let's rewind. I had to get the social <laughs> media thing just out of the way because, yeah. you know, you're a giant, you know, you're a giant in, in the social media space. Like, you know, definitely one of the, um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if there's anyone bigger than you specifically in terms of as it pertains to um, things that pertain to diversity and social media, TikTok, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, I try to do social media. I'm not into it as much as I, as I should be, maybe. But from what I've seen out there, you're kind of like the top dog in it. So kudos to you for, for you know, um, you know, handling your business out there with that. Thank you. Um, so let, let's let's go back to childhood, right? I like yeah. to, I like taking this all the way back to childhood. Tell me about when when you decided you wanted to become a medical doctor. Tell me about that. Was it when you were young or as you got older? What was the thing that made you know, Joel say, hey, you know what? I think I could do this medicine thing. Yeah. Um, so I think there's two things and there's parents and then there's like these series of crucible moments. So both my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. Um, they were born there. We immigrated to, the, uh, to Canada first where I was actually born. I was born in Canada and then to the United States afterwards. Um, I live a little bit north of Seattle um, is where I grew up. And so I call myself a third culture kid. I've kind of been in all these different cultures and like uh, trying to figure out who I am. And I think that has been a huge play for who I am and like why I'm in medicine. Cause I found storytelling and like understanding identity to be huge. I think that's a lot of what doctors do. You're seeing people from all different aspects of life. But in terms of like, did I always know I wanted to be a doctor? Not really. Um, I think I, I, I knew I wanted to be in a field that helps people. I think that's the classic thing you hear. And so I actually thought I wanted to be a vet for a long time because I loved animals and I still love animals. Um, but as I kind of grew up, I had some experiences that put me in the medical field, uh, which were amazing. Uh, as, a, as a freshman inside high school, I got an internship at Seattle Children's Hospital. And I'd been interested in, in the medical field to just understand what it was about. Um, and during my internship, I was at the, the, I worked in the dialysis ward for kids. And so it was people that were 10 to 14 years old having to go and get, their kidneys weren't working well. That's what dialysis does. And so they were going into this ward to kind of help get their, the toxins and the bad stuff filtered out of their bodies. Um, so my job as at that time was literally just to sit with the kids and play games with them or read books with them. And so, remember, so it's, uh, when was this for you again? How old were you at this time? This was my freshman summer of high school. That's pretty freshman cool. High school. Yeah. And so. So these kids, so you're doing this with kids who really aren't, you're not that much older than really. No, I was probably 14 at the time. 
working with kids that are maybe eight to 14 years old. So like some of them that were the same age as me. And I remember that, like looking at people that were the same age as me and saying, oh my gosh, like, like look at this kid that has to either live in the hospital because they can't go home, but like, or like that is just not too much younger than me that I'm getting to actually help out right now. And so that was an incredible experience for me that summer um, of being able to kind of work every day in the hospital and see what it felt like and getting to ask doctors questions, you know, um, and, and ask them like, what is it like to be a doctor? How did you get here? What was your path here? Um, taking it even a step back though, um, when I was growing up, my grandma was my main caretaker. She really took care of us while my parents were off to work, trying to make sure that my siblings and I could eat, <laughs> could, could live a good life. Um, and in around sixth grade, she ended up going back to Ghana, uh, West Africa, and ended up passing away from malaria. And when she got into the hospital, they told her that she needed to bring her own tubes and things there. And she didn't know that. And so it was kind of this lack of access, this distilled care, um, delayed care um, that, that led to her passing away. And I think that was another moment that really had me thinking a lot about healthcare and how disparities exist in healthcare. Um, and I think like seeing my mom in that moment, uh, just like how anguished she was and the conversation that came out of that and just hearing the adults talk about um, how like this should never have happened was another thing that even got me thinking about medicine and like how things like this can happen in the medical field and why they happen as well. Let me ask you that some, so this, this comes up a lot and I'm similar in this, my brother's similar in this, where we talk about like grandparents. So, you know, I was born in Nigeria, grew up in America, mm. born in Nigeria. Yeah. Um, we talk, talk about grandparents having healthcare issues. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about your grandma, I know exactly what you mean, right? Same thing in Nigeria, you know, for my grandparents back then. And that sparked some of us to want to go into the healthcare field. But it's fascinating because that's in a whole separate country. So when that yeah. sparks you to want to consider healthcare, is it sparking you to say, hey, I want to go back to Ghana and mm -hmm. help in Ghana? Or yeah. is it sparking you to say, hey, what contributions could I make here in my local environment? Yeah. You know, like, like, like what is, what's really sparking inside of you when you see your grandmother in Ghana? Is it really, I want to be a doctor or is it, I want to make healthcare in Ghana better? Mm -hmm. I think- it's all, it's all the above for me. And so after my grandma passed away, actually, my siblings and I were like, how can we honor her memory? What can we do to honor grandma when um, like that she was so amazing. She took care of us so much. Uh, and like, this is a tragedy, but how do we make something positive out of it? And when we were younger, my grandma actually used to take stuffed animals from my sibling and I's room. And so she would go and like, what did it tell us? We just see suddenly like things were disappearing. We're like, what's happened to it? We learned later on that she was actually taking those items back to kids in hospitals in Ghana when she would go back. And so we right. actually established a nonprofit in her name. Um, it's called Hugs for Ghana now. Hugs for, okay. Hugs, that's, yeah, so that's Hugsford. where Hugs for comes from. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we started that nonprofit in her memory to really start um, raising school supplies, raising medical supplies, raising stuffed animals, and then taking them actually to Ghana. And the whole idea of, of that was to use our community to raise awareness about like that the world existed beyond just our community. I didn't even talk about this, but um, my community was very white. <laughs> I was one of the only black students growing up regularly all the time in my school of 2,400 students. There was probably 10 black students, one of the other black students being my brother, you know? So I was used to being the only one, but we, we wanted to like bring some diversity, some culture, some like outside. Let's, let's yeah. pause right there real fast. What does used to being the only one mean? What does that really mean? That what, is it, what does it mean for you to, how are you used to being the only one? What are the things that you're feeling, whatever that you, that you get used to? Oh man. Huh?
One thing that I hope to share with our young people of all colors, all genders, is that it gets better. It always gets better. I grew up in poverty and worked through medical school and undergraduate to get to where I am, and anything is possible as long as you have a great network, and I want to be that service to, to people who are coming up in the ranks. We hope you'll be able to make it to the Black Men and White Coach Summit. We'll see you there. Oh man, uh, <laughs> lots. So, I mean, this, the negative parts is I get used to being called an Oreo. Things saying like I'm black on the outside, but white on the inside. Being used to being told, Joelle, you don't act like a black person, but why don't you sag your pants? Being used to saying, like people saying things like, oh, like why are you finished? Why are you always the first one to finish your algebra questions? Um, and how, getting used to having to stand up for myself too, in terms of like questioning. And I actually think this relates very directly to the things I do now of learning how to actually push back on what people were saying and asking them, why do, you, why do you think I act white? What do you think it means? And I was doing, doing this literally as a middle school student. People would say like, you act white. And I would say, what, what does that mean? And they'd say, oh, like you are all in all the honors and AP classes. I'd be like, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, you're smart. And I'm like, are you saying that black people can't be smart? <laughs> like, and then they're like, oh no, that's what I meant. Not what I meant. I'm like, what do you mean then? They're like, I guess that is what I'm saying. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like literally from like middle school, I was having to defend myself against like everything, being the only one and feeling like different in a way um, from what people expected of me, which was very strange, you know, like the way that society puts these pressures and these expectations and stereotypes that we see in the media, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, but onto us, right? And what our peers can actually push on us too. But I think it allowed me to really build up a strong thick skin about, I guess like saying like, pushing back on it and figuring out a way to do it in a nuanced way where I wasn't like getting upset with them, but instead leading them down their own path to understanding what they were saying. It's literally what I do right now, even on social media, right? Like I try, I never get angry with trolls. I never get upset, but instead I try and walk them down the path to ask questions and say, why do you believe that? And what is it, what's the gap between the knowledge you have, the gap between the knowledge I have and how do we meet in the middle there so that I can give you the knowledge I have to get you to where I am right now. You know, and not saying I'm like the smartest in the room, but I think when there's a disagreement, it's because there's some information, whether it's history or so like how you grew up, that is dis discordant between two parties. And it's how do you actually fix that and get someone to understand it? And even if you don't agree, you can at least understand it. So like, I think about that all the time. And I, like not too long ago, I had a friend actually reach out um, who said, hey, I realized I was saying a lot of these things to you, like calling you an Oreo and calling you like, like saying that you act white. I want to apologize because I didn't realize how damaging psychologically that can be. So this is a friend from like high school or something or uh, like a young friend? Yeah, young friend, friend from high school who I, I remember them doing it, you know, um, and I never backed down. I think that was the thing that really helped me out. Um, so, that, not down. so that's really fascinating. When you said people would say you, you, you act white, mm. I thought you were going to say black people were saying you act white. Mm. But that, but it, that, that, that wasn't don't maybe that might have been simple, but that wasn't so white, even white individuals were saying that you act white. Oh yeah, even white individuals and black individuals said it too, you know. Um, and I, I would use the same line of thinking because I think it actually it helps too, right? To be like, why do you think these are exclusive to white people? Why does like talking in a certain way preclude you to being white, you know? Uh, or why does being student body president preclude you to being white? Um, 
but like I said, I think it was mostly from white people because that was the community that I was around. But I did do a lot of programs that were with black individuals, um, and so especially like black students, especially uh, when I did like I did YMCA programs over the summer and things like that at the Meredith Matthews uh, YMCA, which is absolutely incredible. Um, but a lot of the students there would say things like that, especially me coming from a little bit farther north of the city. So um, were your parents intentional when you did those things? You know, the more, you know, quote unquote, black programs, were your parents intentional about getting you that exposure to both sides? So they wanted you to have the, the majority white exposure than, you know, the, you know, minority black exposure as well? Yeah. You know, I'm actually not sure if it, how intentional it was. I'm, I, I we never talked about it in that way, but I assume that it was because they found those programs and they made sure that I was a part of it, um, you know, but they also made sure they put me, they put me in a lot of programs that I think they just saw as the, like students doing well, being successful doing. So they put me in piano lessons. I've played piano since I was five years old. And you still playing now? I still play now, yeah. And every time I wanted to quit, my mom would say, you're not quitting, you're, you're going with it. I played all the way through high school. We did Kumon, which was like this math and reading center. Um, and I hated Kumon, I remember uh, with a passion because it was these math and reading worksheets that you'd have to do every single day. And it'd be like five or 10 pages. But my dad like never let down, always made sure we were doing it. And if we didn't get it done, we'd sit down with him and finish it and we wouldn't leave. But I know like I was, when I was in like first grade, I was reading at an eighth grade level. And I know it was because of those you things. Were, do you say first grade? You're reading at an eighth grade. grade level? Yeah, I remember we, I have my little certificates still, uh, but I, I like loved reading. And I, I think it was part because once my dad told me reading is like watching television. You have to make the, the picture in your own mind. And after that, like changed everything. I was reading so much. He didn't like that I read fiction books only. <laughs> um, and so he was always like, read more nonfiction, but I loved fiction books and reading. But you still also, love reading? I still, when I get time, I have a whole list of books. I have a whole stack of books right here that I haven't gotten into, but still love reading for sure. I've actually transitioned now to more nonfiction. So I love reading biographies, autobiographies, um, like leadership books, self-help books, all those types of things. But I, yeah, I don't know how intentional it was for my parents, but I think they were just trying to figure out like, as immigrants to this country, what can we put our son into? And both our kids, I have a younger brother, old sister, into to get them just exposed to as much as possible and what are people that are doing well in the end doing right now so what are your what what i was gonna ask what do your siblings do now but but maybe we'll get into that later on so what other things were you into as a child things um now what, what what kind of child were you were you like a jokester were you like just serious all the time do you like sports do you debate what are the things were you into as a kid try to get yeah. a sense to see your development over the years yeah so I was pretty serious, I think, and that's what my mom's told me, which I'm now more of a jokester, and I think maybe it's been to compensate for that, because I've heard yeah. that I was serious for a long time. Um, but yeah, I remember I was a ser pretty serious kid. Um, I was always good in school. I always got my work done. Loved hanging out with a teacher, strangely enough. So I would, I was a guy that would kind of, remember in middle school during lunch, I'd hang out with my one of my language arts teachers, Mrs. Skierbeck. I still talk to her to this day. Um, and I would sit with her in lunch and like help her grade papers and stuff and just hang out. And I have a group of friends that would do that. In elementary school, I remember- in That is super grade, strange, Joel. <laughs> so strange. It was, it was actually really, it was low, she was amazing. Like I wish, that's the other thing, I had incredible teachers. And to this day, I still go back to all my teachers. I, I have a group chat with my middle school teachers. Like, what? I know, it's weird, right? Like, I still go back to my school. I still record, like, they asked me to record things for them and, like, talk about being a HP Harvard Point alumni. I still do all that because, like, one of the things they did was I would walk down the halls 
um, going to class and all the teachers would go, Joelle Bravel, and just like yell my name every single period as I was going down the hallway. Like I had, it's, it's strange to say, but I had the most supportive environment from the teachers. Um, and like, I, that's, I think that's why I got involved in things like student government. Um, and I felt really spoken to, I don't, I don't know why, what they saw in me at the time, but they really encouraged me. Um, and so I would, yeah. Did they do that for other kids too? Not that I really saw. Like, I, I don't know what it was. I, it wasn't one teacher doing that. It was kind of like multiple teachers were doing that. There was a core of teachers who I call the Fab Five, <laughs> who were like, it was Mrs. Skierbeck, Mrs. Oling, Mrs. Bradley, Mrs. Spencer. Um, and they would like, Mrs. Lewis. And they would, uh, they would always hang out and like talk to me. And I think it was, as I got to know them more, like I did student gov government. So I hung out with the teachers a lot too. Not hung out, but like worked with the teachers a lot too. Um, and I was a student body president, literally from eighth grade all the way until 12th grade. Um, and so that was part of it too. Where I really got to know administrators, did a lot of leadership, like knew the vice principal and the principal and the teachers and all, all that type of stuff. Um, but I, I don't know what they, what they saw. I mean, I, I, maybe I'll ask them actually after this, I'll text them and be like, what was it that you saw that like made you speak to me so much? Um, let me know if they tell you, let me know. Cause that's pretty cool. Cause I mean, it's really, it's fascinating thinking that you were one of the few black, you know, individuals in the school, um, and your teachers got behind you and supported you oh, and yeah. you know, did all that, did all that for you. And, mm -hmm. and obviously your, your, your peers thought highly of you too, right? If you're student body president, yep. right? So as you're saying that, I'm thinking like, man, how can we get that same type of support for, you know, everybody, you yep. know, not even just, not even just black men or whatever, but how, how can, like, how can, cause you, that's, those, that, those are the typical stories you hear about teachers and support. Like my kids school, I love my kids school, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the teachers love them, support them. So, you know, we get that type of thing, but how do you get teachers to like, what was it? in you that made the teachers the question you're going to ask them right what did they see in you that made them encouraged and enthused to, to support you that way right but how can all teachers get that same feeling to support the kids like that that'd be amazing imagine imagine what that would do for you know kids development obviously it worked mm -hmm. absolutely and i mean i think about that a lot and it's i do a lot of mentorship now i've led multiple mentorship programs both when i was in college and also even now i did a mentorship i started a mentorship program here in my local community and i think part of the reason why is because i know how impactful it was for those teachers on me and how much i still think about them um actually a story i tell is like when i was a, a senior in in high school well i'll tell two stories and they're both actually about barack obama so first it's when funny I, you said about barack obama because when you're talking about this whole thing and thinking like man he just he's like obama that's, that's, okay. that's what i'm thinking when you say it, all this stuff i'm like man and I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about, would you ever consider politics stuff like that? That was coming in my mind, but you weren't born here anyway, so you can't be president. But <laughs> yeah, I would. I don't think I want to be president anymore. At one point, I did want to be president, but not anymore. Um, but in eighth grade, when I was running for student body president for the first time, it was the same year that Obama was running for office. And I, I honestly think that's partly. It sounds weird to say, but partly why I won. People would call me Obama walking down the hall, like my friends and the other kids. Mm. I mean, partly because I was black, you know, I was like one of the few black students, but I was fine with it because uh, I knew I was running for student government. I was treasurer in my seventh grade year. Um, and I think that was like, I looked up to Obama so much um, and everyone kind of knew it in the school. And so when he won, like, I still remember the moment my mom like cheering and I was like, this is amazing. And came to school and saw, watched inauguration in Mrs. Ricardo's class. Um, what, what, what year was that? When was, what was Obama's? 2009, 2008, 2009. 2008, 2009. Okay, I was going to say for like, I was trying to see if it lined up with, because I was, I was, my first year of med school, I was president. I was going to, I was going to say, I wonder if that's the same effect, but I was a little before, mm -hmm. I was 06, I was before that happened. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, okay. 
yeah but i remember like it was like it was a huge impact on me i think about this all the time but uh so after that literally like i said i loved obama and i wanted to try and find a way to meet him like every single time i'd be like how do i get to go to the white house or how do i get to go well i found out about this program um that's called the united states and youth program where they choose two students from every single state in order to go to uh, the white house and spend a week in washington dc doing all of this kind of work um, where you get to meet a lot of politicians and like like literally like the head of FBI, CIA, US Department of Transportation, US Secretary of State, everyone. Um, and so I ended up applying for that program because I learned that in order to apply, you had to do student government, which is why I kind of did student government all those years. Um, and then you like I had to go to the specific leadership camp. And at the leadership camp, you had to like apply, do interviews. Once you got past those, past those interviews, you had to go down to the capital, Olympia, and actually take a written test and then have an interview by like a panel of like 12 different people. But I did all that. It was crazy. I think did all that. And I was like, I'm going to meet Obama. I'm going to meet Obama. I ended up being one of the two students that won the scholarship. And so that that year, like in March, right before I graduated, got to go to the White House, spent a week in DC, one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. Um, I'm just like, I don't know, just like setting me on the path, just being like, I'm on the right, I'm the, doing the right thing right now. Um, it is amazing to see what can happen. And like, I remember the moment where we were waiting, waiting in the red room before Obama came in, there's like a hundred students and all our military mentors as well. And Obama walked into the room and everyone just like the collective like gasp that happened, you know? But one of the moments I will like forever remember. But when I returned back, I remember, like I said, I would visit all my teachers at the end of the year. I went to visit one of my teachers, Mrs. Spencer, who was my sixth grade science teacher. And she gave me a book that she had gotten signed by President Obama like years and years ago. And she like wrote this little note to me and everything. Um, but she gave you a book that Obama signed for her? She gave it to you? She gave me the book that Obama signed for her. And, and you, like, you don't mean like she lets you borrow. You mean like she gave it to you, let you keep it? She let me keep it, yeah. Wow. And so my goal to this day is actually to get it. To, I want to get back to President Obama to have him sign it. And like write about her and then give it back to her because i just think like that what like just her giving that away to me and what that said to me like she didn't think about me all those years you know and just like rooting me on um and like i said i think it's so unique to have a teacher like that but after that i was like uh like i, I love teaching i love mentorship i love that all that kind of stuff because of how many people poured into me for reasons that i mean i don't know or understand but i appreciate man that is awesome that is absolutely amazing yeah. That's, that's bonkers. Um, so, okay, let's fast forward. So I got a good sense of the type of kid you were, um, you know, understand kind of some stuff that got you interested in medicine with the dialysis and such. It, Yale for undergrad, right? Mm -hmm. So what led to the decision for Yale? I mean, you went from, you know, <laughs> ultimate, you know, West Coast way over here, flew across the whole country, go to the other side, right? What led to that decision of Yale? Yeah. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, ain't no time for stressing. I've been really stepping. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, if you wanna go get it, stop playing around. Really got on racks, ain't playing 